0: Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Melbourne author and playwright Gabriel Bergmoser joins fellow crime writer Caroline Overington to discuss Gabriel's fast-paced, visceral and utterly electric new thriller, The Hunted. A quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. Now, to introduce Caroline, here's the host of the event, Readings Events Manager, Chris Gordon.
1: And it is now my pleasure, absolute honor to introduce you to a Walkley, a winning journalist, uh, someone who's written an extraordinary amount of books, someone who we read about on the papers, someone who we have cherished her words pretty much every weekend since since I can imagine. Carolyn Overton, what a treat it is to have you as part of the Readings Program. It's quite uh, an honour for me, I feel like I've been reading you on the weekend papers, uh, I feel like that I've read your books, and now here you are, literally, in my very own lounge room.
2: <laughs> and I, I, the honour is all mine. This is, as I was saying to you before, Christine, the best crime book I have read for years. Ah. So when I was asked if I could do this, I was thrilled for the opportunity, just thrilled.
1: Carolyn, fantastic, and welcome Over to you and uh, remember everyone, just send your questions and your comments through to me and I'll make sure Carolyn or Gabrielle get them. Have a wonderful time. Thank you, Carolyn.
2: Thank you, Christine. And thank you also to Readings for hosting us tonight and to HarperCollins as well. Gabe, welcome.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Such a pleasure. So my friend gave me this book just as we were getting on a plane. And she was saying, here, you might like this. And I could, it was, an, it was only an hour's flight. It was only Sydney to Melbourne. And by the end of it, I was already well into it. And I had to know what happened. And I was absolutely aghast, just horrified when I found out. I had to read it through my fingers. I could barely look at it. And the book, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's got such vivid descriptions and, you know, the horror at the heart of your book. But it's also, it's triumphant. It's dazzling. It's cinematic. It's just such a thumping great read. And, you know, people are always looking for that book that you cannot put down, that you need to binge read, and this is that book. So I, actually I recall the night that we met a few months back in Melbourne. And my friend said, oh, by the way, he's coming tonight, that guy whose book that you're in. And I remember I asked you, are you going to do horrible things?
3: (laughs) And I lied through my teeth.
2: To the characters in this book and you said, well, um, and you did. You betrayed me. You did horrible things, the characters in your book. And also I was expecting somebody who looked like john jarrett i was not expecting somebody so young and so cheerful and so thoroughly lovely you know i was looking for some sort of wolf creek style character and there you are so welcome author of this nightmare this blood-soaked thriller addictive in its own way and delicious book the first thing i want to ask you is didn't you just go a bit too far (laughs) um
3: It's funny because like I was asking myself that question a lot through the writing process and not because I was particularly bothered by it because I was thinking I have to send this to the decent, reasonable, you know, uh, upstanding people who publish books and hope that they're not going to immediately call some kind of law enforcement to, you know, have me taken away for, you know, like, is it like minority report where it's like, you know, you, um, you you try to work out the crimes people are going to commit before they commit them. And I kind of feel like writing a book like this is like a pretty clear way to sort of get people jumping down on you and being like, all right, you're capable of some pretty messed up thoughts. Where's that coming from? Uh, so, you know, all the way through, I'm kind of like, all right, I'm going to have to mitigate this and at least sort of, at least ex- uh, put out the impression of sanity as much as possible. But, um, but no, in the end, I kind of just just hit send and waited for that call to come, and it turned out that the people in publishing who I was sending this to were as messed up and morbid and deeply <laughs> disturbed as I was. And, and they went for it, and now it's out in the world.
2: Well, we're all thrill-seekers in our own way, aren't we? But I, what I want you to do, Gabe, is I want you to sketch the story without spoilers. For the listeners that we have today and for readers of the future, you start obviously with a young man on a road trip around Australia or really into Australia, I guess is a better way of describing it. So take us take us from there, but no spoilers.
3: So it unfolds in two different timelines. We have a then timeline and a now timeline. In the then timeline, we meet Simon, who is a honours student. He's recently graduated and essentially he's a Kerouac-obsessed uh, Kerouac kid who really just wants to get out and find Australia and find himself. And he's got all these romantic ideals about the open road and, you know, discovering the truth about this country and, and, you know, something genuine and and chasing experience and all of that great stuff that, you know, you, you wholeheartedly believe in when you're reading on the road and you're 22. Um, but, as he travels, he soon finds that it's, you know, it's not as interesting as he thought it would be. It's lots and lots of just like empty stretches of highway. It's lots of pubs where nobody talks to him. He's not really brave enough to put himself out there and experience anything genuine. And so one night he stops into a pub and he decides to get a little bit pissed and he meets a girl and he's immediately smitten by her. She's, she's funny. She has a laugh with him. They play pool together. They get on. She asks if she can travel with him. And he says, yes, yeah, sure thing. And, it quickly becomes clear that she has her own agenda yes. and there is something that she's looking for and that she may or may not, mild spoiler alert, definitely is using him. So that leads us into the sequence of events that will eventually arrive at our now timeline, which involves an Older man, Frank, who's living in a middle-of-nowhere roadhouse. His young granddaughter's been sent to stay with him. They have nothing to talk about. They've got nothing in common. They've never really met before. He doesn't know how to navigate this. He just kind of wants these two weeks to be over as quickly as possible. And then suddenly one afternoon, this car comes careening up at the front of the roadhouse, a girl steps out covered in mud and blood, and the only thing she says is don't call the police before she passes out. So these two stories unfold in parallel until about the midpoint of the book where they intersect, and that's roughly the point where the, the really disturbing, horrifying, did I go too far, but obviously not because people seem to be buying it, uh, stuff starts to come into play.
2: Uh, not just buying it, loving it. When I put up on my Facebook today that I was talking to you tonight, in the first two minutes the comments came in and it was all people who had already read it and just loved it. But I, I wanna I wanna go back to that character you just mentioned, the woman he encounters, Maggie. Now she's not she's not fearless exactly, but she's utterly determined. She's really determined to take him way outside his comfort zone, far further than I think he would ever have imagined himself going. So, can you talk to me about her character development? Was she always yeah, but she's almost the protagonist in her own right isn't she she she, she carries a lot of the story
3: yeah so Maggie is um, I guess for want of a better phrase she's kind of the the thread that connects the two different timelines and the two different halves of this story I guess but to me Maggie's also very much she's the beating heart of the story and it was her character that made me want to write this in the form it was currently written so I've said before in other interviews that I originally wrote this as a novella so it was just the the Maggie and Simon on the road stuff it was pretty much just that part of the story and it was about halfway through writing that that I found myself just totally enamored with the character of Maggie because while she was originally introduced as a way to basically make the plot happen for Simon, the more I wrote about her, the more I was like, there's a lot more to you than I realize. And by the time I got to the end of what was originally planned as, you know, a 15, 20,000 word novella, I realized that I, I'd barely begun to delve into who she was. And so I really want to see what happens to her next. And I really want to know more about her past. And I just found myself completely, you know, head over heels in love with this character as sometimes happens. So, so, no, Maggie Maggie was an accident in a lot of ways. Um, you know, she was somebody who started out with the, with the intention being that she would be one thing, turned out to be something very, very different, but it was an incredibly welcome surprise because she's one of those characters who just basically writes herself. You know, you, you kind of feel like you switch to her perspective and you have in your head all these ideas of what you're going to write and what she's going to say and what she's going to do. And then she'll just do something totally different and you go, okay, cool. Well, I'm get I guess I'm just going to, you know, hang on for dear life and hope that I don't end up anywhere too horrible while she's at the steering wheel. So, you know, she is somebody who I see a little bit, a little bit like a spin on, on, you know, like your Clint Eastwood man with no name archetype, you know, she's a, she's a wanderer. She's a nomad. She's got a dark past that she's running away from. There's a lot of, I guess, details about who she is and where she's come from and what has shaped her into this this mix of both anti-hero vigilante and quite self-centered, quite damaged young person essentially trying to find her place in the world, but not necessarily being convinced she has one. And I don't know, somewhere at that intersection between these two potentially opposing ideas that that I found this character who I really wanted to write about and, and want to continue to write about as much as possible because I just find her so fascinating.
2: She is. I had in mind a kind of Linda Hamilton. I know you're very young, but there was a character that played by Linda Hamilton in The Terminator who had this yeah, yeah. kind of moxie about her, the same sort of sense of self destruction, but also destruction of the world around her, too. There's also, we've got, we've got Frank, who owns the, um, the Outback Survey. And I have to ask you, have you spent too much time in Outback Surveys? Because the description of the, you know, the slightly sort of sad food in the cooling Bain Marie's and the, you know, the, the products on display, it's all very vivid. And I, I wondered how much road tripping you did yourself to get that sense of the kind of places we see when we're on the road
3: none whatsoever um i was never ever brave enough i mean it's it's Like, I've said in a few different interviews that, you know, Simon, the character of Simon is a very thinly veiled version of exactly who I would be if I ended up in this situation. But that's actually not entirely true because Simon already is braver than me because he actually goes on the road trip. I never went on that road trip. Like, I was always the teenager who, you know, was waving around his copy of On the Road being like, I'm going to do this the moment I finish school. I'm going to get out there and find myself and chase the Australian dream, whatever that means. And, you know, I never did it. And... So you know the the in terms of the um the road trip experience that's not coming from anywhere that I've actually lived, but I did grow up in country Victoria and, you know, between a lot of the towns and stuff out there, there are many of those road houses, like many of those rundown dilapidated little places that have that slightly musty smell of disuse. And exactly what you said, the congealed food sitting in the old Bay Marie. And there's that like coat of grime over everything and that little bit of dust. And there's only like, you know, three out of date packets of chips on the shelves. And so, you know, I've, I've seen some, so, so many of those places. And I think there is a a sort of built-in familiarity to the rundown old roadhouse because we've all stopped in places like that. We all know places like that. And I think it is such a a uniquely Australian thing that it kind of just had to be the setting of a thriller, you know, at some stage, right?
2: Right. (laughs) And, you know, Frank's an interesting character, I think, because he's a man with his own trauma, which I guess I, I didn't expect. I mean, in some ways... I found the book is as much about the trauma of the individual characters as it is about the nightmare that they encounter on the road. and I, I was wondering was that a deliberate thing by you to bring together sort of all this dysfunction in one place?
3: Well, absolutely. i think I think there's a there's a thematic intersection that occurs at the roadhouse because the the hunters in this story, the antagonists of this story, are uh, to me representative of a deliberately warped and deliberately deliberately bastardized i guess version of an australian not not and i wouldn 't even say an australian man i 'd say you know a, a version of of the Australian identity that I think you do encounter in certain pockets of this country and that has an inherent kind of menace to it and people have been writing about it for years you know wolf creek wake and fright you know i'm not the first person to sort of delve into this and to me frank and maggie were two characters who had both firsthand suffered because of this strain of danger or menace in the australian character characterized by different people who they'd encountered at different points in their journey frank in particular is somebody who in another life could very well have been much of been one of these people Like, I think there's a point in his past which is articulated in the book where he could have gone a certain way and he chose to go a different way and he was punished because of it. He suffered because of it. And that's something that he's been hanging on to ever since. Whereas Maggie is somebody who was very much victimized by essentially the same kind of person who end up hunting them down at the roadhouse. And so for both of those characters, this represented a way for them to both overcome and in some ways, defeats their demons and their trauma. So that was very much intentional and very much, you know, something that connects those characters, but also connects them with the bad guys just as much as it does the good guys.
2: Now, people will want to know a little bit about you as well, Gabe, as well as the, the characters. What, what, what do you feel, particularly the development of your own dark heart, I think, <laughs> what, what can you tell us about where you came from? What is your background?
3: Oh, I'm punishingly boring. Like I am such a dull human being. Like I need to stress that, you know, I'm not, like I said, you know, never brave enough to do the road trip, never any of that stuff. Um, no, like I, I grew up in a small country town. Um, I, it was a country town that was, it wasn't the town in the hunted, not remotely, uh, like, like any country town, you know, there, are, there are elements of that danger as I alluded to before, but no, it was a lovely place to grow up. And you know, when I was 15, I was lucky enough to get a drama scholarship to a boarding school in Melbourne. So from from fairly early on, I was living in the city and Melbourne basically, you know, became my home within five minutes of me boarding down here. And so, you know, I was in Melbourne and I uh, went to university down here. I studied my, my master's of screenwriting at VCA and have been sort of working in the independent theatre scene predominantly for the last few years. So I've, you know, I've had a pretty like, I mean, I, I don't think any writer ever has like a a smooth trajectory to to I guess something like this happening or getting published on this scale because it is a, am I allowed to swear? Like it's a, it's no. a, yeah, no, no,
2: the, the rules no, of service of Zoom mean the whole thing will shut down.
3: Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair, fair away, enough, girl, it's um, fair away. Well, it's a, it's a utter <laughs> shit of a career in a lot of ways. And, um, and so, you know, like there's, there's, there's positives and negatives and there's ebbs and flows and there's moments where you think you're going to be really successful and then things fall apart. And you know, I had all of that on the way, but, but no, like there was no, um, there was no hugely exciting traumatic road trip that I went through or anything that led to this book. I mean, it's, it's an amalgam of stories I heard. It's an amalgam of like a handful of things that I experienced and, it's also just like a love of gritty horror films and survival thrillers and all of those influences that I kind of just like put into a blender and like turned on and then came out with this book and was just like, please like it. And yeah, here we are.
2: And, and you mentioned there, um, the acting, uh, that acting was part of a passion of yours when you were a younger man. Um, did you consider pursuing that instead of writing?
3: Uh, early on. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, I went to Caulfield grammar on a drama scholarship and I was convinced I was going to be an actor, you know, that was, that was, and I mean, I, I have like horribly embarrassing stories from being there because, you know, like I, I got there and very quickly realized that I'd gone from being like the one person or maybe one of the two people in the high school plays I did in my small country town who actually gave a shit about them to being like one of many, many people who was really passionate about this at a school that had a massive and hugely supportive and hugely nurturing drama program. And when you're up against some people who are really formidable talents, your own lack of talent can become, you know, very stark and very confronting very quickly. So, I mean, I think in a weird way, writing kind of became my fallback because I was I was a big reader and I was writing a lot I was writing kind of a lot through my teenage years, but it was always sort of the the, you know, it was the it was the thing, thing I was doing on the side of what I thought was going to be, you know, a swift and successful uh, you know, escalation to an acting career. But but no, I think pretty much by the end of year twelve, I knew that acting wasn't wasn't really going to work for me. I knew I wasn't really good enough. Um, I, you know, missed out on basically every audition I went for around the end of school and early uni but the great thing about it was that that wasn't by that point it wasn't really a choice or or I guess a a shift in in what I valued that was particularly painful because by that point you know writing had really overtaken it for me like I'd gotten to a point where I realized this was what I wanted to do like I wanted to I wanted to create stories more than I wanted to I guess inhabit somebody else's and by the end of year 12, I was so in love with writing and I was so kind of in love with storytelling that I just never really looked back. You know, I still did community theatre roles here and there and I did some youth theatre stuff shortly out of school, but never seriously and never, never in any way that was was ever remotely going to lead to a career in it.
2: Now, am I correct in thinking that you're 28 years old now? Is that right? Yes. Yes, I am. You're 28. And yet you've written, this is not your first book. You've written young adult
3: thrillers before this, is that right? Yeah, so I wrote a trilogy of young adult adventure novels before this, all three of which were launched by Readings, which is kind of very exciting to to be back here again, even if we're not physically in the store. But uh, yeah, so they were published by Belfrog Books, who are a tiny uh, independent publisher. And basically imagine like Tintin meets Doctor Who set in the world of Lemony Snicket. So they're they're quirky, they're adventurous, they're a bit silly. Uh, it's lots of time travel and swashbuckling adventure and all of that stuff. I mean, they, they in a lot of ways they kind of couldn't be more vastly different to The Hunted, and it's been really funny sort of seeing people who've reviewed The Hunted comments on that, being like, "Oh, I'm going to look up some of his other books," and I'm like, "Yeah, enjoy," because then it, you're not getting more of the same. But um, but yeah, so they're the Boone Shepherd books, uh, which the first of which is here.
2: Oh, you've got it there. So, now, yeah. can, we, can we talk about um, covers? I know there are different covers. Now, the one that I got must be the Australian one, which has got like an outback scene. Is that right? I'm yeah, yeah. hunted now, not the the, the now, not the young adult books. In the US one, it's got blood pouring down the front. Is that right?
3: Uh, that's the UK, which I also conveniently have right here.
2: That one, um, that one. Yes. I really like that one.
3: It's cool, that, isn't it? It's very cool. I wanted
2: to ask you whether you had a favourite.
3: Oh, you can't ask me that because it's going to be recorded and then I'm going to get in trouble. Um, well,
2: I, tell us who makes those decisions on things like titles, covers, that kind of thing.
3: So the um, the title was, it was actually Catherine at Harper who came up with the title, The Hunted. So originally it was called Sunburnt Country. And Catherine came to me with The hunt and she was like, this sells the book a lot more, which is very true. And it's kind of just one of those things where, you know, I it's defer a hundred- It's
2: Sunburnt Country. That's well, that a was...
3: beautiful poem. And this book is monstrous. <laughs> which was utterly intentional. But like, funnily enough, um, so my- so I'm, I'm with Curtis Brown, the agency, and Curtis Brown also represents the estate of Dorothea McKellar, who wrote oh, the yes, My Country right. Poem. And um, and basically, early on, one of the reasons that we realised Sunburnt Country couldn't be the title was because that was me being, you know, ghoulish and saying, you know, I, I love the idea of this beautiful poem about how wonderful the Australian landscape is being completely twisted into this, you know, horrible, blood-soaked, gritty, visceral... <laughs> Reimagining of it, maybe. In fact, um,
2: it's a thriller, like a real yeah. page-turning thriller, not, not an idyllic sort of ramble through the Not
3: remotely. Um, but uh, the McKellar estate were very adamant that this particular book would not be allowed to have that particular title. So that was made clear very early on in the process and um and basically yeah i think it was the hunter definitely sells the book more effectively than i mean i like the i like the kind of cruel irony of sunburnt country as a title but the hunted is getting more to the core of what i think it's about and what what you know yeah. you can expect from the book
2: and it's interesting too that the australian cover includes much more of the setting and i i wanted to talk to you about the setting i mean we have seen quite a bit of this in australian crime with the the sort of outback the isolation becomes almost a character in its own right, the sort of bleak nature of it. What do you feel about the importance of the landscape in which you're telling the story?
3: Well, I guess I, like, I I kind of look at the work of people like Jane Harper, right? And, you know, I mean, Jane Harper's obviously the queen of i guess what we call outback noir and and is you know referred to a lot by i think pretty much every aspiring australian thriller writer but i love the way in her books the landscape becomes a character you know it's so so essential and it it not only becomes a character but it it serves the purpose of reflecting the kind of hard sun beaten damaged you know tough rough people but, you know, with, with these little kind of sparks of humanity and tenderness and decency in them. And Jane Harper does that so beautifully. And I landscape kind of not only as a character, but it becomes, a, it becomes sort of a metaphor for what's going on for the characters in her stories. And I wouldn't go as far as to say that I was trying to emulate that in any meaningful way. But I was definitely influenced by that. And I definitely wanted it to feel i mean i was I was a little bit in some ways vague about the landscape just because i wanted I wanted the audience to be able to read this and think that this could happen anywhere you know because people have asked me where exactly this it set, and I genuinely don't know, but because I think that these desolate stretches of the country and you know those dusty old roads that you turn off and you keep going down, you have no idea where they 're going to lead, they exist everywhere throughout Australia, and I liked the idea that reading this book, you could really envision it taking place. It could be in Queensland. It could be in Victoria. It could be in New South Wales. It could be, it could be in the outback. It could be any of those places. And so that was important to me, but it also did need that specificity. You know, it needed the, the swaying grass. It needed the, the dry cracked earth. It needed, you know, the, the almost melting bitumen, all of those elements were essential to making it feel real if not necessarily specific,
2: Exactly. Now, I'm going to ask you one question about the film rights because we've got a few questions coming in from the audience that I'd like to take as well. Um, I I also... Well, let's ask you about the film rights. I understand you sold the film rights before... or the film was acquired before the book. Have I I got the...
3: the Yes, yes, that's correct.
2: So how does that work for people who have that aspiration for themselves?
3: Um, I was just... I think I was just very lucky in that I was able to get the world's greatest literary agent. So I knew Tara when beforehand. She'd been introduced, We or we'd been introduced by a mutual friend. And I'd sent her a couple of manuscripts and she'd been like, oh, good, but not quite, good, but not quite. But because I just got such a great feeling from Tara and because I really liked her and because I just really... I really believe that, you know, she could do amazing things. I didn't sort of look at other agents, even when she turned stuff down, like I just kept coming back to her with other things. And eventually this was the one that she looked at and said, yes, let's go for it. But I think, I think Tara was quite savvy in, in selling in, sort of getting the film right sold early because the book is so cinematic. And I think Tara recognized that. And I mean, realistically, it was originally envisioned as a screenplay. You know, it wasn't always supposed to be a book and it's earliest iterations. I thought I'd write it as a film and eventually I wrote it as a book because I was like, well, you know, I'm going to have, I'm, it's going to be easier to sell the book than the film, right? Like I'm going to have more luck selling the book before I sell the film, which in reality turned out to happen the other way around. But, no, Tara just, Tara sent it to Jerry Kalajan, who is an agent in LA who she's worked with quite a bit. And he sold, I think he sold like Big Little Lies. He sold The Book Thief. He sold like a lot of, you know, a lot of really high profile things. And Jerry read it very quickly, like read it one night, got back. And he just, he knew exactly where to send it. He knew exactly who to speak to. And he just got out and advocated for it. And it just happened so quickly. And I mean, I'm, I'm keenly aware of the fact that like, having been to LA before and having done the rounds in LA before and taken meetings and done all of that, this is not normal. You know, this was, this is not an experience that I expect to have ever again for the rest of my life because (laughs) I, I just, I know kind of, and and I mean, it was, it was funny because as sort of the positive feedback came back from people in LA, even then, Tara was like, You don't seem that excited about it. I'm like, No, because I just, I feel like I've been down this road before. You know, I've been to LA, I've been in rooms with people, and I've been in rooms with people who've told me, You know, oh, you're amazing, man. You, you know, your script is so great. Like, we want to do something with you. So we want to do something with you. Like, give us your number. And then they never call you again. And, you know, that, that old adage about you never have a bad meeting in LA is like so, so true. So even when I was hearing good stuff about it, I was like, Really? Like, I'll believe it when I see it. And then I saw it. And oh, then look, suddenly, I, just, I yeah. think
2: you got a seat on a rocket. And you've taken it. Now, we have some questions from the audience for you, Gaye. The first one is what is the first book you remember reading and what also set you up to achieve so much asking for a friend who is a parent? (laughs) Um,
3: So I, I could not tell you what the first book I remember reading is. I mean, I remember vaguely things that I guess my parents read to me when I was younger, but in terms of the first book that I picked up and read, I have no idea. Um, there are things that I knew had a massive influence on me when I was younger. Like I think back to things like, like the Animorphs books, if anybody grew up in the nineties, you know, they'll know and probably love those. Uh, Harry Potter of course was massive, a serious unfortunate events. But I mean, even when I talk about those, that's getting into my early teens. And I, I, I could not tell you what the first thing I read that I guess made me a voracious reader was, but, but I was reading young and I was reading a lot young. I can tell you that much because I just, I just loved it. And you know, I got yelled at by my dad a lot for sitting at the dinner table with a book in hand, you know, (laughs) furiously pouring through and being like, I don't want to make conversation. I want to keep reading this about the not real people. Um, But in terms of what set me up for it, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. It's a combination of, of having a a abiding and probably unhealthy obsession with stories from a young age And, you know, the fact is, I think when I look back at the trajectory of my career, there's just probably not really any question that I would have been doing anything else because, A, I wasn't good at anything else, but B, I also didn't really care about anything else the same way I did about writing and did about stories. You know, I was obsessed with films, I was obsessed with books, and that obsession, I think, is what gave me the grounding. But the other thing that I don't think can ever be discounted or ignored is the support I got from my parents. And, you know... If, if your kid comes to you and says, I want to be a writer, then I think a lot of parents would respond with maybe learn to weld instead. And I don't think that they would be wrong to have that response because, as I said before, it's, it's a difficult career. It's a shit of a career. And it's a career that's based entirely on subjectivity. You know, it's based entirely on people reading something that you have made up in your spare time, not only taking the time to read it, but actually liking it. And that there's no guarantee of that. And then on top of that, if, if you manage to get it through an agent, get it through a publisher, it still has to find an audience. You know, it still has to get out in the world and it still has to be something that people want to read and want to spend money on if it's remotely going to be a conceivable career. So when I, when I kind of think back on it now, you know, I'm like, how deluded was I to ever think I could make a go of this? But when I went to my parents and said, this is what I want to do, there was never any question from them. I mean, you know, there were there were maybe gentle suggestions about and what what might your backup career be? But <laughs> you know, I mean, they did everything in their acting, power to babe.
2: acting was your
3: <laughs> acting was my backup. Well, apparently not because I was shit at that too. But um but no, they even then, you know they they supported me through going for the drama scholarship uh they supported me you know through several schools being like no you're not good enough and then finally one managed to let me in and you know that was amazing but then you know through through like uni and everything else there was never there was never any like any telling me don't do this or this is a bad idea or advising me to chase another career or anything there was just 100% unconditional support from day 1 and i can't ever I think, articulate how grateful I am for that, because I don't know if... I, I, I think that, you know, that having that support early on is so crucial. Like, it's so important.
2: Oh, I hope for really this, because as a mum, they would be... and if, Well, and I'm sure that all the dads too would be super, super happy to hear you say that. I do have another question here from the audience. Well, two, actually. The first is, what crime writers do you yourself like to read? And the second one is, are you going to be in the film And do you know that you can request the right to be in the film? Uh,
3: um, So the crime writers who I really enjoy, Tana French is my unquestionable idol. You know, I discovered her early last year and just became obsessed with her work. I think she is the best crime writer I've ever read in my life. And, I think the way that she merges, you know, really poetic, beautiful, lyrical prose with page turning mysteries, with flawed and damaged and complex characters, and all of her books are so different to each other, but they're all in a series and they all complement each other. I, I just think she's an unparalleled master of her craft. Uh, Thomas Harris, the Hannibal Lecter trilogy was pivotal for me. I read that when I was way too young and, you know, there's a <laughs> couple of, couple of little tributes to the science of the land. Now and we the find Hunters. the
2: source of the damage. <laughs>
3: Yeah no I am um, I, you know, I think I think those three Hannibal Lecter books because there are only three um there was not a fourth one they they really you know did a did a huge like really shaped my sensibilities but also you know it was one of the moments when I read red dragon for the first time when I was like 13 and it was one of those you know mind opening moments of just being like I didn't realize stories could do this so you know I mean Tana French and Thomas Harris are like probably the two you know the two idols that i have but then you know i mean people like jane harper obviously are brilliant you know there are just so many we have so many
2: this year i believe yes yes
3: uh the survivors next month and i'm really really glad that the hunter came out beforehand because otherwise our sales would have been in the toilet but um (laughs) (laughs) i'm so excited i can't wait
2: i can't wait either i think it's going to be terrific and what do you think about being in the film
3: oh um well i've already asked the director there's there's one particular part i want to play of a guy who dies horribly at one point partway through, he's one of the hunters and you know, I imagine him, you know, know having a rank horrible mullet and Yeah, like horrible mullet and, you know, bent cigarette hanging out of his mouth and tinny a VB in his hand and, you know, in the middle of doing something bad and then he ends up getting blown up and I really want to play that guy. And I've already requested it to the director. I'm like, so I don't have to say anything. You don't even need to see my face. I just want to make that brief appearance and I'm happy to grow the mullet and I'm happy to, you know, go method for it and really inhabit the character, but I really want that part.
2: And have they given you any any indication who might play... Your other roles are still too uh,
3: Yeah. Um, all can I can say on can that front. Sorry?
2: You can be cagey with us if
3: you like. I will be cagey with it because I think I'll get shot if I am anything less than cagey. Um, but, Please yeah, there, there, there are names it. in conversation at the moment that are very exciting. And that's probably all I can say on it. But I'm really hoping announcements come soon.
2: Now, one of the um, one of the listeners tonight or one of the watchers, Charlotte, wants to know, what is your writing process? And I know a lot of people who are busy on their manuscripts will be tuning in tonight, and they're always interested in how you get it done. What are the nuts and bolts of it for you? I think...
3: I think it's, it's a... I think everything about writing is often inherently contradictory. You know, I think it's got to be it's got to be natural and it's got to be something you're in love with, but it's also got to be something that you discipline yourself into doing. Because I mean, I think a lot of writers are procrastinators and I am as well, you know, and the, the lesson that I think I've failed to learn in all the years I've been writing is that when I, once I'm writing, I love it. You know, once I'm sitting there and once I'm actually, you know, typing things out and I'm in the story, I can't stop, you know, it's not uncommon that I'll write like 5,000 words a day, but actually making myself start, that's the challenge. And a lot <laughs> of the time, it's like, you know, particularly when you write on a computer and it's like, oh, well, social media is right there, or this website's right here, or I can just play some Mario or whatever, you know? So it, it's, it's, yeah, I think like most of my process is procrastinating for ages on end and then finally maybe towards the late afternoon actually getting some writing done but you know that said there are those magical stories that come along sometimes that just sort of you know compel you to always be writing them and all you want to do is write them and all you want to do is wake up first thing in the morning and start writing until the end of the day and then when you go to bed you're dreaming about it and all of that and then you wake up and you know you set an alarm to get up early so you can do more of that and i haven't had one of those in a while but (laughs) I guess the, I guess the short answer to what I know is rambling and slightly incoherent is that there isn't a set process for me. It depends on the story. You know, there are some stories I have to really push myself through and that doesn't make them invalid. That just means that they're more challenging in some respects. And some, some of those things have been things that I've, you know, been really proud of in the end. And there are other ones that just flow beautifully and feel like they're writing themselves. And those are things that have never seen the light of day. So it's, it's hard to kind of gauge. you can't, I guess, measure what's going to be successful or what's going to work or what's not and you also can't quantify the process not for me anyway all I know is that like if I don't write I get weird and so whether I'm naturally doing it because I want to do it or whether I'm sort of sitting down and making myself do it because I have to either way I, I just have to write because if I don't I go to weird dark places and it's just not healthy for anyone
2: what do you mean by that if you're not writing you go weird what does that mean
3: uh, I just I get sad and I get introspective and I get angry and like you know I mean I remember like what was it like? I remember a couple of years ago, like having this moment where I opened the fridge and like a housemate hadn't like uh, had left something empty in the fridge or like a, 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 almost empty carton of milk or something. And I went into this like full fledged, like, you know, explosion of rage, like how dare they and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and then I was just like, wait, hang on. Why am I, why am I so angry about this? And I realized it was because I hadn't written in like two weeks.
2: Right. And
3: you know, but, but I,
2: it's, it's therapeutic even though it's, yes,
3: been- it is. It absolutely is. And it's a form of expression. And, you know, I think all writers inherently have busy minds. And, you know, that busyness needs to go somewhere because if it doesn't, it builds up like a pressure cooker and you know, you you end up kind of going a little bit mad. So I kind of think I, I, I think it's it's almost it's an outlet in some ways. And it's a it's it's it is a form of therapy as well. Because I mean all all writing, you're in everything you write, you're putting on the page something that you need to get out for one reason or another. You know, there's always, it, writing's pointless if there's no element of truth in there, or if there's nothing in, that, nothing in there that, that really matters to you, or, or is some deep-seated, uncomfortable truth that you're trying to explore, or nut out, or get to the bottom of. And so, you know, it, it is therapeutic, and I think it's necessary. And, I, you know, I think it all just comes down to this great quote I heard from a writer on the radio once, saying I write because it's cheaper than therapy.
2: <laughs> but also, I mean, look, some of your characters are very complex women too and young women who have suffered a t- terrible trauma. And that's really interesting to me what you're saying there about your need to get some of that out. You know, this There seemed to me to be in you a lot of anger about uh, violence perpetrated against women.
3: Well, I think I think it's violence perpetrated against women, but violence in general, you know, I I, I think... I guess I look, I look at some of the people I grew up around, you know, and I look at, I look at the way that, how do I put it? Like the way that they would, the way that they would treat people, the way that they would feel that they had the right to treat people a certain way, because like, you know, whatever, you know, you're, you're bigger and stronger and you're, you're in with a cool group Or And this is, this is talking about school, but it's also, you know, it's the hierarchy you see in Australian pubs all over the place. And I have, I have no time I have no time for anybody who tries to use violence as a means of, of attaining power over somebody. I just, I just, I, it disgusts me. I think it's horrible. and I think it's ultimately meaningless. And, you know, it ultimately like, what, what are you like? What, okay. You've scared somebody into submission. Congratulations. And so I guess, you know, there, there is something in creating characters like Maggie who, you know, are seemingly powerless, but, you know, you know, uh, I guess, seek justice and meet out justice in a way that maybe sometimes, yeah, in a way that, you know, I guess I always look at like Elizabeth Salander and the girl's dragon tattoo, right? She's never allowed to kill the bad guys. Like I was always annoyed because she goes up against the most reprehensible characters. And I'm like, fuck them up. Like just fuck them up and she never like she always stops at the last minute and it's always that bullshit thing you hear in stories where it's like oh no i'm better than you if i do that i'm going to be as bad as you and i'm like yeah but i want to see you be as bad as them i want to see you give them what they deserve and maybe that's immature and maybe that's something you know we have to work past but i do think that there is there is part of us that likes seeing righteous justice dealt and that's what i wanted to create with maggie
2: still some of your characters I felt, you know, they're, they're scared, you're right. They're scared they've been bullied and, and they're, they're trying to push back against injustice and, and not always successfully. I mean, some really good guys. I, well, I don't want to go into any spoilers. And we have to finish because I'm not allowed to go over time. But I have a message for you. As a child who memorised the words of all these books before he could even read. And oh, could, in the and I could never skip a word because he would know. He was always destined to be a writer. Oh, thank, God,
3: you, mom. <laughs> mom. Thank, thank you, Mum.
2: From Gabrielle's mum. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm going to hand over to Christine to say our goodnights. The book is absolutely magnificent. It's very, very, very rare. I get hundreds of books, hundreds of books every week. It's very rare that I take the one that's given to me, open it straight away and cannot put it down. It's wonderful. You've done an incredible thing. Thank you for talking to us tonight. Thank that you so much oh, There's so much that I want to say about
1: tonight's conversation. I have laughed. I've cried a little bit. I was so moved by your mum writing in, Gabe. I know it's not something that you want to... <laughs> broadcast out there but it's never happened in the whole time that I've been in Zoom over the last six months and it means so much when we just get a little taste of what your life was like. You Carolyn, I mean of course you're an investigative journalist, I mean of course you do this so well, I mean it's to be expected but I love the way that you kept bringing it back around, that you dug a little deeper. Gabe, I think you were so lucky to be interviewed by someone like Carolyn and us us that we're all viewing, all of us on Zoom land, what a treat we've had. Everyone go out and buy this book. Buy it. Do yourself a favour. <laughs> Be terrified. Be, terrified. <laughs> Be frightened by something greater than is happening right now to us all. But mainly, thank you on behalf of HarperCollins, on behalf of Readings, on behalf of the very talented, very young Gabe and Carolyn, one of my heroes achingly
2: young Gabe
1: <laughs> achingly young I feel like that too literally Carol and I could be your you could be our son and and you know what we'd be fine with that we would literally be fine with that because we have high expectations no we don't we don't
2: <laughs> it's just wonderful he's done an incredible job and he's a beautiful young man as well he really he is. He's a credit to his parents who are watching yeah I think so too Everybody, let's give him a round of applause.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. See you next time. See you next time.
3: Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for having us.
0: You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can also sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you could sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.